This is Soundstage founder Doug Schneider. You're listening to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast, your semi-regular deep dive into news, facts, opinions, and anecdotes about everything that really matters in the world of high-performance audio. Hosts Brent Butterworth and Dennis Berger have more than five decades worth of audio product testing experience and a few hours of podcasting experience as well. Now, here's Brent and Dennis. Hi, everyone. It's Dennis Berger, editor of Soundstage Access. And Brent Butterworth, editor of Soundstage Solo. And we both write for the Soundstage Network, which is a collection of nine microsites covering all sorts of topics on audio, from very affordable stuff to very high-end stuff to headphones and just about everything in between. Yeah, something for everybody who wants to hear sound. <laughs> yeah. That's good. So, I think we got a pretty good collection of topics this week. I, um, I want to start... In sort of a, a weird avenue, I want mm-hmm. to start with a a comment thread on Audio Science Review, and it was specifically a comment by Sean Olive that um, that stood out to me. It's, it's a thread about the Harmon curve. It was a comment by Sean that I thought was Wait, interesting. Who's Sean and the, who's Sean, Sean Olive? Doc, we say? Dr. Sean, Dr. Sean Olive, uh, researcher for Harmon, uh, okay. compatriot of Floyd Tool, um, probably responsible for a lot of the research into what makes headphones sound good and, you know, for, for most people. So, um, but he had yeah. a really interesting comment thread on, a really interesting comment on this thread that I thought was sort of a mic drop that got ignored. Everybody went back to their own <laughs> sort of tribalist, yeah. you know, thoughts. And, and so I want to, I want to shine a light on this comment and sort of talk about why I thought it was interesting. What do you want to talk about? this week? I want to talk about an article. This is going to be weird. It's going to be a little, uh, a little different for us, but we're going to talk about an article that was in Harper's magazine. Mm-hmm. Which is a, you know, for anyone who doesn't know Harper's and, and, you know, there's probably a lot of people who don't because, you know, there's no newsstands anymore. Um, and Harper's is still you know published in print. Um, the December 2022 issue of Harper's and I wouldn't have known. I used to read Harper's a lot. Don't so much anymore. But I they actually a, a PR person pitched this to me. I guess she was a PR person for Harper's. And the article is called Corner Club Cathedral Cocoon. Now, that could be anything, but the subtitle is Audiophilia and Its Discontents by Sasha Frere Jones. And Sasha Frere Jones is a pop music writer. He was a pop music writer for uh, the New Yorker magazine for about 10 years. And it's pretty well known, but he, in this article, he decides to start to explore being an audiophile and and what that means and and kind of rethinking his attitude about audio gear and he goes on something of a journey mm. to find out you know to 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 find some of you know at least what he considers to be the leading lights in audio to sort sort of you know it's a, it's a it's a journey of uh, discovery mm-hmm. a search for meaning and um, it doesn't have any dogs in it, but it's um, <laughs> it's kind of, oh, nothing's perfect. It's kind of it's almost like it's almost like a little movie <laughs> in a magazine article of his his journey of discovery of high end audio. So we'll talk about what his conclusions are, and yeah. uh, and 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 the different people that he spoke with, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what else we got? 
You know, we often uh, end by talking about uh, piece of coverage in soundstage. We often go to like the show coverage, but one of the things that we've overlooked is the YouTube channel, the Soundstage Network YouTube channel. And there's specifically a segment on there uh, called Soundstage Real Hi Fi mm-hmm. with our founder and guiding light, Doug Schneider. He's got a new video up called Hi Fi Will Never Die Because Skateboarding Didn't. Mm-hmm. And that sort of drew my attention. Hey, it's a really cool video. And I wanted to sort of point people in the direction of that video. And I thought you and I might also have some thoughts about the discussion. So I want to kind of dig into that. And um, But first, before we get to that, let's talk about this audio science review comment thread okay. and Sean Olive's comment thereon. So mm-hmm. um, unsurprisingly, <laughs> this is a comment thread about the Harmon target curve. Um, and basically boiled down to someone, you know, pointing out, hey, I EQ'd my headphones to, to match the Harman target curve, and I didn't like it, so Harman target curve is bad. And there's a big, long discussion, I think it's like 20-something pages, about different aspects of the the, 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 the research and the Harman curve and the fact that, you know, some people prefer more bass, some people prefer less, but... Was this one really interesting comment in particular that I want to shine a light on? And I wish it had gotten more attention. I wish this had been the direction the conversation went in, but mm-hmm. it died on the vine for some yeah. reason. But but anyway, basically what it boils down to is somebody come, came in and said, look, you know, we're talking about all of these listening tests and blah, blah, blah. And I really think that, you know, the, these listening tests should be limited to, you know, AES members, <laughs> right? Card carrying AES members should be doing this research. Mm-hmm. And, and Sean brought up a really really good point you know aes member card as criteria have you not seen the audiometry uh data collected by the house ear institute at aes convention basically what he's talking about the fact is most you know card carrying aes members have significant hearing loss because of their you know of the occupational hazard of hearing loss in the audio industry and he's like why he's like most aes members would not qualify as trained listeners in the harmon panels um so <laughs> you know, he was like, maybe if we started making hearing aids, they would. But I expected that to get, I don't know, it's kind of like he was dropping the mic and tossing a bomb at the same time. And people just sort of ignored it and went back yeah. to their previously scheduled conversation, which was Harmon Curve bad, Harmon Curve good. But um, I don't know, I, I've been babbling enough. What do you think about this, man? Well, I... <clears throat> I see it as a little bit of a missed opportunity (laughs) (laughs) because so much of what the the guy that, that Sean is responding to, and I'll say that Sean is a scientist and he's also Canadian. So he's, you know, he's not, uh, (laughs) he's not the type who's going to do, he doesn't have the fire in the belly to go to do serious <laughs> battle with these online nudniks. He's not a gauntlet thrower. Right. He's not a gauntlet thrower. He's not a, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a talker, a reasoner and stuff. And some of these people just need to be slapped down. Um, who could, who could do that? Um, mm. <laughs> maybe, maybe me. All right. So yeah. Sean, Sean makes a great point. This guy is saying that, you know, AES member card, I'm an AES member and I don't have a card by the mm. way, but maybe if you're going to talk about AES members, you should join AES. So you understand what AES does. That'd be a nice step, but, mm-hmm. um, 
So, yeah, I'm an AES member and, you know, <laughs> there are AES members in their 80s who are not <laughs> qualified for listening tests because they're, they're too old. But anyway, so this and by is, the way, this, we should say Sean used to be the president of the AES, right? Right. Indeed. Yeah. 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 So anyway, so. Yeah, I think I think Sean kind of knows what's going on with the AES a little bit, <laughs> and this guy has no clue. And yeah. um, I, I, I really, there's so many, so many things. This guy, his name is Urho Kalevi, whatever that is. That's his tag on online. I don't know what that means, but mm-hmm. um, you know, know, he 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 says one of the things that annoys me here. This is everything he says is very typical of what people don't understand about science. He says, I'll quote, wonder what kind of flute music and or silencer in the A asterisk asterisk SPL levels they might have been using in those listening tests. Well, gee, you wonder? Well, it's published. <laughs> it's published. When, yes. when they do those listening tests, they tell you all that stuff. They document everything they do. And this is yeah. what, I mean, I do much lower i I kind of model a lot of what i do on what sean and his colleagues do right Mm -hmm. where you document everything and no i don't do aes papers i do articles for for websites right that are consumer websites but i still try to document as much as i can and explain to people how i did it okay so gee if you're wondering how a scientist did their work just go read it. It's published. Okay. Yes. So that alone makes this guy not a not an individual who I would say has <laughs> cons- consider has put substantial thought into his opinions. Or- There's another problem with it, and I think this is going to be a recurring theme in this episode. Mm-hmm. It plays right into the notion that high fidelity audio reproduction is for an anointed few and they are the ones who are the tastemakers and the arbiters of what is good and what is bad and theirs is the only opinion that really matters and he seems to have this attitude that like you know a university janitor should not have any say in what is good or bad sound and to that i would ask why don't we don't we want to sell a university janitor on higher fidelity audio reproduction? Shouldn't he benefit from it? Isn't his opinion on what sounds good every bit as valid as yours or mine? You know, I mean, it's maybe more so. Hey, look, a lot of audiophiles like really bright sound without much bass. Yeah. That's not realistic. Right. I'm a musician. I know. And yeah, but but they like that because it shoves the detail up in their face, and that's an experience they like. But most yeah. people don't like that. That doesn't make them better. That just right. makes them different. Right. Yeah. So if we, you know, we're constantly in hey, the final segment today, we're going to be talking about, you know, perceptions about, you know, the, the hi-fi as a, as a declining hobby, whatever, you know, we'll get to that discussion. Yeah. But, but let's just say, you know, if there is any validity to that notion, I think part of that boils down to the fact that this is like sort of you know perceived as a boys club right with a special few who get it right and everybody else doesn't get it we have to Mm -hmm. embrace this as something that could be a meaningful part of everybody's life whether it is simply buying a better pair of wireless earphones you know there's nothing wrong with that but i do think there is real benefit in everyone enjoying higher fidelity audio reproduction 
and this attitude that, you know, only the select few are allowed to say what is good and what is bad. That's another, I, I wish that had been picked up on and run with, but it just, like I said, it sort of died on the vine. Yeah. And, and also I just, I really kind of playing into that same thing. He then talks about how, you know, the harm and curve test group members might've been some half deaf DJ and university's janitor. The rest being just senior students of university, about half probably in hangover. Well, <laughs> these are these are idiotic comments from someone who just yeah. has no critical thinking skills whatsoever. I actually have a different attitude towards listening tests than than Sean does. My attitude now. Let's let's not forget. I'm working on Sean can do a you know a few major projects a year. I do colossal amount. I don't have the time. I don't have the resources that he does. And also, I don't have to publish my results where other scientists are going to read them. It's pretty rare that that happens. My attitude is I want to get some people who are into audio and also some people who are not. It's what they used to say, you know, trained and untrained listeners. Sean makes the case in in a lot of his work, Sean and, and Floyd Toole, who was, uh, you know, Sean's mentor, they make the case that you get a lot more consistent results with just train listeners. And there's no question about that. They have made the case that that is true. And having untrained sort of more random listeners randomizes the results a lot more. Scientists want to get kind of good, clean results, right? Mm -hmm. They don't want to look at something and say, well, gosh, we just don't know. It's kind of random. And that's good. If I were someone designing, you know, voicing audio products, I would want to go with that rather than the results that Brent Butterworth gets uh, mm-hmm. right. as one of as sadly one of the few people who does you know blind testing outside of science. And I think that's the probably the big differentiator is Sean is doing work to develop products. You were doing work to help people decide to, which to, products to, to buy. Find, to yeah. find out how people react to products. And he, and, and yeah. a lot of what he does overlaps with that too. But I'm kind of looking at like, well, how do average people respond to these things? And mm. I kind of don't care if my results are all I'm trying to do. I'm not trying like Sean. I am not trying to prescribe anything. I'm Ooh, trying yes. to fi- figure out what people will like. Yes. He's trying to come up with some kind of you can't take a whole bunch of random people off the street and and probably get really, you know, useful clear results. Sometimes I I do. Like I just did some sound bars, right? And with with some uh non-expert listeners. And I was really happy that <laughs> the one I liked the best was the one they liked the best. And it was a surprising result because it was one of these little tiny sound bars is like 14 and a half inches wide. But it was wonderfully engineered and voiced. It was really, really good. So they liked the one, but they liked it for kind of the same reasons. And so, Mm -hmm. however, some of the other ones that I liked, they didn't like so much. And, um, you know, people, people judge things because, you know, it can be actually like kind of audiophiles tend to like stuff that's really dynamic. And a lot of people don't. You know, mm. they don't want to have sounds jarring them out of their seat because, you know, they're not looking for a wild ride. They're looking for something they can sit down and, and throw some Netflix streams on in the evening to relax to. And they're not looking for 
something that an audiophile might be looking for. So if there's a wide range of reactions to the products that I'm talking about, I want to be able to tell my readers, hey, look, yeah, it wins in a blind test, but however, you may not like this or that, right? All I'm trying to do is make it to where my readers pick stuff and then they send me an email or make a comment somewhere that said, hey, I got this and I liked it. And what I don't want is when someone says, hey, I bought this and I hate it. You know, that makes me reconsider what I do. I mean, sometimes you get comments that are like a real emotional reaction. And sometimes people just have, you know, an inflated sense of what they really know about audio. And well, and also, you know, I, it's, there have been times in the past where I have fallen into the trap of getting into a mode of thinking that this is correct, right? This Mm -hmm. is the right way to do it. And for, a long time in my career, I had an aversion to things like nighttime mode on receiver, you know, mm-hmm. dynamic range control. And I still don't like to use it for myself. But when I was setting up a media room system for my dad, you know, and he's looking over my shoulder and asking me, like, what is this? What does it do? And we ran across, you know, nighttime mode. Like, what is that? And I explained it to him. And I basically was like, this is bad. Right. And <laughs> then <laughs> and then he started using it. And he was like, God, I just can't. It's like, I'm having to turn it up and turn it down. And it just I was like, he's like, can we turn on that nighttime thing, you know, to see if that helps? And like, I just held my tongue and 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 did it. Right. And all of a sudden. He's using his home theater system more and more consistently, and he's watching television with it, and it's on every night. And and that made me rethink. It's like, well, wait a minute. Like, why did I, you know, <laughs> why did I have this? Per- why can't I just admit, no, I prefer this. And so I'm trying to make it sound more scientific. But if it makes my dad use his system more, right, and he's enjoying higher fidelity performance from his movies and his Netflix stream, like, why is that a bad thing? So it's not. I, I had the same. I had I had a house guest in for the holidays, and and I end up using the night mode on my soundbar because mm-hmm. <laughs> it was so loud. You know, we 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 were mostly watching the TV, but we you know we wanted to converse a little bit. And with the in the normal mode, you know, this good soundbar. It plays loud. It plays soft. But you know, the night mode made it a lot easier for us to hang out and enjoy it. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that's why people buy audio products. They don't buy them to write about to go comment on them on Audio Science Review. Like maybe some people do, but most people do not. <laughs> Obviously, just, most people. I'm going to go out there on a limb and say most people do not get on Audio Science Review or any other audio forum and comment about the audio products they buy they just listen to them and they like them or they don't like them yeah yeah but anyway i wish i wish people had i wish people had taken sean's bait here i wish more people had engaged with this idea that you know a lot of audio engineers are probably not the people that (laughs) he wanted test panels and he gives a really good reason and i'm really sad that that the conversation went right back to uh you know, the status quo. So anyway, we're going to link to this comment thread in the show notes. People go read it, but don't, don't skip over Sean's comment because I think it's really important. I think he makes a good point here. So, okay. And also, um, you know what, before you attack research, go read the research. Yes. Okay. Otherwise you look, otherwise, you know, the soundstage audiophile podcast, they might call you an idiot. And, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they might. Um, 
and so go read the research and most of Sean's stuff because you know it's all done for Harman, which is you know owned by uh, Samsung and stuff. You know, big corporation, um, and they want to kind of beat their chest about it. I, most of Sean's stuff is uh, all the all the big, really important papers that are on big topics that you want to read. A lot of that is is published freely and you can go get it some stuff is behind the aes paywall and you got to be an aes member to download it for free and if you're not they charge like 33 bucks so maybe you're not mm-hmm. going to do that but a lot of times uh, all right i'll just say it right now a lot of times you can search for if you know the title of a paper you can search for it online and you'll find somebody has posted an excerpt of it or you'll find somebody commenting on it where there's enough you you can you can i'd say with probably two-thirds of the papers that are out there you can find something on them to where you can at least get the gist of it and you can get some idea of their methodology but you know look i don't care who you are sean olive's methodology is better than yours Mm, okay yeah so unless you are unless you are another noted audio researcher who publishes lots of AES papers and maybe even then I'm sorry his methodology is all thought out if you have questions about it go read the research yes absolutely so we're going to come back and we're going to talk about uh come at it this this from a completely completely unscientific and different angle where audio or music writer Sasha Frere Jones delves into audiophilia yeah, this is going to be a fun one. Let's go listen to some music and uh, take a little break. We'll we'll come back and we'll dig into that. Cool. And we're back. This is the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. I'm Brent Butterworth. And I'm Dennis Berger. And we are going to discuss an article called Corner Club Cathedral Cocoon. I don't know why they called it that. Well, I because do. It, it alliterates. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, he actually explains in the course of the story where that comes from, though. Oh, does he? I guess it was just, it's a long story, man. It's yeah, a long yeah. story. <laughs> so, so do you want me to explain? Pardon, pardon me for missing something. Yeah, tell me why. Because I, I think that's something I missed in the story. Tell me why. So, why so you right, sound- this is by, wait, let's just say this is by Sasha Frere Jones, who mm-hmm. was the uh, pop music writer for The New Yorker for i think about 10 years and um, whose work i've read a lot of as a former frequent reader of the new yorker and um it's called audiophilia and its discontents is the subtitle so what is corner and it's in harper's magazine the december 2022 issue now what does he mean by corner club cathedral cocoon 
He breaks down audio reproduction basically into four domains. And I'm working from memory here. I, okay. I probably That's should fine. have taken notes. But so the, the corner he describes as basically a space in which audio reproduction takes a backseat to people. People take priority over sound. Basically, street parties, uh, you know, um, whatever, you know, like festivals, things like that, right? That's the mm-hmm. corner, right? The, and then he talks about the cathedral as sort of the audiophile environment where we, like you don't have to be alone, but if anybody is there, like their job is to shut up and listen, right? <laughs> you, yeah. you listen and you only listen. You, it, it, is, it, is, it is audio reproduction as religion. Right. And then the club is sort of he describes as halfway between these two points. And he talks about like um, like jazz cafes, things like that. So so a certain level of audio quality is important, but there's also the human interaction. Right. You you know, you you and your friend like watching TV, but still wanting to talk. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the cocoon he describes as like the way most people experience music these days through headphones or even earphones and you're sort of, um, you know, very sort of solitary experience. And so in the course of this exploration, that's sort of, I think he's leaning more towards talking about the cathedral and the club, but he breaks down those ideas just to talk about how we interact with music and sound. And so that's, that's where the headline comes from. Okay. So what he does is he, for whatever reason, um, he decides to go into a journey into audiophilia. This is, you know, a guy who's made his living by writing about music decides that, but, but, you know, who admits that he listens to music on all kinds of different devices from, you know, even down to like a, a UE Wonderboom Bluetooth speaker, which he's totally happy with, but he decides to go on a journey. Now, <clears throat> I will say this guy is like, the living embodiment of, you know, that famous uh, uh, illustration from, from the New Yorker, which has been made into posters where they show New York City in like great detail <laughs> and all the different neighborhoods and stuff like that. And then you go over the Hudson and it's like New Jersey. <laughs> you <know>? yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Midwest, California. Right. The Far East. Like there's just nothing worth even talking about. <laughs> west of the hudson and this guy is sort of what i call the professor and marianne effect where like the first season of gilligan's island that they were just and the rest yeah and the rest it's just sort of like there's the new york and the rest so this guy goes into (laughs) an in-depth you know exploration of of audiophilia and and indeed talks to noted audiophiles and audio manufacturers but he doesn't seem to talk to anybody outside of New York City, (laughs) (laughs) which is going to limit it in a lot of ways because people in New York City tend to not have a lot of space and, and they have a certain, there's a certain audio culture in New York City that I think is very different from what goes on in most of the U S and probably most of the world. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, he talks to uh, audio writers like, you know, Michael Fremer, who's the very, very famous, you know, vinyl advocate. Uh, I don't think he talked to Fremer. I think he just references him a lot. So oh, but he, he, did ter- he did talk to Herb Riker. OK, yeah. So he did. I'm so, OK, he, so he, I'm sorry. He didn't talk to Fremer, but he does reference it. He talked to Herb Riker, who's a writer for Stereophile, who lives in, wait for it. Brooklyn. <laughs> he talks to our good friend Steve Guttenberg, who was just on our podcast, who lives in 
Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he talks to Devin Turnbull, a maker of you know bespoke speakers who lives in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sensing a theme here. <laughs> this guy doesn't like to go any place that he can't get to on the subway. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but he talks about. He, he makes it sound like all audiophiles basically are into what, uh, uh, you know, like, like Herb Reichert's into, which is, you know, mostly, you know, single into triode tube amps that have, you know, under 10 watts of power or something like that. And big horn speakers that are super efficient. But he basically talks about that's the whole world of audiophilia. And if, like there, there is no room for... Anything with a tweeter, (laughs) like a tweeter, cones and domes are just like that. Don't that doesn't exist to him. That's a Bluetooth speaker. Completely ignores the existence (laughs) of let's say Bowers and Wilkins, Paradigm, (laughs) or Paradigm, or 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 all that. If you go on to like Audio Advisor, right, which is one of the biggest you know audiophile merchants, you know online stores, it's dominated by. Those kind of brands, people that make speakers that have cones and domes and people that make, you know, relatively normal amplifiers that you can just hook up to whatever speaker and it sounds good to great. Um, Mm -hmm. So he kind of ignores it. He kind of acts like the entire world of audiophilia is just single into triodes and horn speakers, which obviously it is not. Um, Mm. But but that's okay. It's still it's one man's journey. And that is okay. And, you know, I mean, my journey would be different, but it, I, I would hope it would also be worth reading. And if Harper's wants to have me write about my journey. Yeah. Well, I don't know. What, are they, what does it pay? <laughs> it's like, it's like Nigel Toughness. I don't know. What are the hours? Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, <gasps> yeah. anyway, so, uh, but. So it's just this, this, the, the nice thing is though, he doesn't come to the perspective of like, and this is a guy who's listened to a lot of music and who is also a musician in his own right. Um, well, he's a bass player. Do those really count as musicians? Well, more than drummers. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. And singers. Um, so, um, anyway, um, but it's funny that he ends up, you know, he talks to Steve Guttenberg and Steve recommends, he's not like, well, gosh, you know, how, how, how many tens of thousands of dollars should I spend on my speakers? Um, you know, Steve's like, Steve recommends the Klipsch RP600M, which is, I think, like 600 a pair. And, um, and which this guy finds used on eBay for 350 a pair. Mm-hmm. And, um, I'm trying to see if he mentions even his electronics, but he doesn't. He, he I doesn't. Was, uh, <laughs> but that's yeah. okay. He comes kind of comes to the conclusion that like, oh yeah, whatever, it's fine. Um, yeah. You know, and he's right in, in a sense that I mean, yeah, a great audiophile system can sound incredible and can do some things, but a in, in my view, and I, I think his, you know, a decent system will tell you what you need to know about the music. And, you know, it's, I, I, I kind of get a little annoyed by these, I don't get a little annoyed. I get a lot annoyed by all these people that demand that you spend tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars on, on audio gear. And Mm -hmm. I got to tell you, you know, a a $50,000 amplifier doesn't tell you anything about the music that a good $2,000 amplifier doesn't tell you. I mean, a, a, 
a Parasound amp for two grand will go as loud as that, you know, $50,000 amp. And it'll be just as quiet, if not quieter. And, yeah. um, you know, it'll, it'll get you there. And it does, it's, it's, neither one of them, well, the, the Parasound's not going to have any audible significant tonal colorations and the $50,000 one might depending on mm-hmm. what, you know, what technologies are used. So yeah. I, I really, I like that. I, I really, I was reading all this stuff. It's like, Oh my God, he's going to all these Brooklyn guys who have all this wacky gear. And he's going to come to the conclusion that yes, you should go buy a single ended triode <laughs> amp that has about three Watts and you should buy this speaker. That's 105 decibel sensitivity, you know, regardless of its, of its, you know, frequency response anomalies. Yeah. Cause a lot of those speakers have pretty bad frequency response anomalies to get that sensitivity. Yeah. Um, yeah. but he didn't, he came away and said, Hey, look, I mean, his, his recommendation, what he ends up with is not a whole lot different. What I tell like average people, like, you know, some of my coworkers and stuff like that, who, who, you know, who, who aren't audio people. Um, what I tell them to go, I tell them to go buy, if you want a good sound system, go buy a good set of bookshelf speakers, which there's lots of those. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's bad ones, but there's good ones. You can, you can pretty quickly figure out the bad from the good by reading a few reviews. And, and go buy like a, any kind of a decent amp that, that you can find that suits your, needs and that does the things you want it to do and hook that up and put the speakers on stands and put them, you know, a foot or two out into the room and it's going to sound pretty good. Yeah. You know, one of the interesting things is you described in the introduction, you described this article as sort of akin to a movie. Uh Uh-huh. It's funny. I had a different reaction. I thought this article was more like an open world video game. Right. Where like there's kind of a goal, (laughs) like you're going somewhere, but you don't really have to go there in any particular order. And there are side quests and little, you know, it's like I'm right now I'm playing through uh, Ghosts of Tsushima, which is an open world samurai Mm -hmm. game. And there's these like, you know, it's like, oh, hey, there's a little there's a little uh, uh, fox shrine. I'm going to go pray at that. And you bump into somebody and it leads you off in this. And this article is sort of like that. (laughs) It's just like squirrel. Um, But one of the things that's really interesting, the fascinating as I thought his sort of summation of the history of audiophilia in the U.S. versus Japan in the post-war era was really, really interesting. I, I thought that was just a neat side quest where he's talking about, you know, a lot of where this this whole, you know, fascination with compression drivers and horns comes from, you know, speakers that were designed for cinemas, cinema sound yeah. and sort of the evolution of that and how Japan had a very sort of different, you know, history and because of different circumstances. I thought that was really neat. So, um, you know, even if you don't end up agreeing with this guy and his conclusions, I think he goes on some Well, I hate to use the word digressions because that sounds like a pejorative, but they are digressions. They are. It's a good article. I I want to say this is a good article. I mean, yeah, it's 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 an exploration. It's and it's not one where, you know, where the guy's going to end up. You think you do, but you (laughs) you You think you do, but you don't. He does not end up. And, you know, this guy seems to me like so New York and like he's going to end up being you know, having, you know, adopting the sort of, you know, the, the, the Brooklyn audiophile kind of attitude. <laughs> and you know the what? Ideology. If someone, if yeah. The ideology, right? The, of, of, you know, the Brooklyn audiophile ideology. And you know what? People from Brooklyn, if you have a problem with that, 
Well, you know, I, I had three different apartments in Brooklyn, so I know Brooklyn pretty well. But, you yeah. know, I'm, I feel qualified to say there's, a, there's an audiophile vibe <laughs> about Brooklyn. That, that, that's what Brooklyn audiophiles do. So there you go. Yeah. Too bad. Yeah. <clears throat> they do not have big, giant B&Ws. They do not have big, giant home theater systems. They do not care about Dirac. They do not care about, you know, what's per channel unless it's the least possible that you can buy. So <laughs> anyway, it's a different vibe, but he yeah. he, he kind of wanders through that, that landscape and comes out on the other side and continues his journey. And yeah. I think that's really great. Um, so... You can. Uh, I was lucky enough to be sent a PDF of this article by a uh, a PR person from Harper's, but um, <clears throat> who probably didn't realize what I was going to do with it. But <laughs> <laughs> oh well. Be careful what you ask um, for. But um, you can go buy Harper's on the newsstand. This this issue should still be out because since it's not even December yet, it's still on the mm-hmm. stands, and so you can go buy this and, and read it. Um, yeah. Or, Go to your library. Do libraries still have magazines? I, yeah, of course they, they do. do. Yeah. yeah. I just think it's really interesting to see a mainstream publication writing about hi-fi audio reproduction. Because, yeah. you know, aside from the stuff that the, the we've been seeing in Washington Post lately mm-hmm. surrounding the, the whole MoFi kerfuffle, yeah. it, it's not, you know, normies don't talk about this stuff a lot. So they I don't. just think it's going to be kind of cool to, you know, have a bunch of normies that read Harper's <laughs> exposed to yeah. this. And maybe that just plants the seed and maybe they think, huh. Maybe I could get some good speakers. Yeah, and you, know, <laughs> you know, I like I like to get a perspective on this that's not from the typical audiophile. Blah 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 blah. Here's my ideology. Here's the people mm-hmm. that I believe. Mm-hmm. Blah 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 blah. This is a comp- a guy who who gets music. Obviously, the New Yorker hired him for ten years. Um, you know, that's some pretty good coin writing for the New Yorker. By the way, just want to say. I wouldn't um, know. That's some. Well, I have not, but I know people who have. That's some pretty good coin, man. I'll take that in a heartbeat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't get invited to those kind of dinner parties, so I don't think I'm ever going to be writing for the New Yorker. Well, I lived in New. I lived in New York a long time ago, and I did actually meet people. Or met one guy who wrote for the New Yorker. Maybe a couple. Um, Maybe I should start a magazine, the Alabama Er. <laughs> Oh God! Oh my God! Oh my God! Um, <laughs> I don't even want to go there. Um, <laughs> You've been here, though. Well, you could show the other side of Alabama, which is the side that you show me when I visit you. Yeah. So, like, you know. Anyway, but nothing against Alabama. Mm. Nothing against you know. Honest to God. You guys have better food there than we have here in Washington State. So, yeah. Um, That's faint praise. Well, no, ser- serious. The whole the whole American South has far better food than the American. <laughs> that's because we will fry anything that will sit still long enough to be fried. And that's yeah, just always better. I, I got to tell you, man, there's some we seriously. There's some mind-blowingly good food down there, which oh, yeah. is not true here. So anyway. Yeah. Um, well, let's let's move on, and then we'll come yes. back, and we'll talk about what. Uh, we're going to be talking about a video on the Soundstage Network channel from our founder Doug Schneider, talking about how uh, what what skateboarding has to do with hi-fi.
and welcome back to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. I'm Dennis Berger. I'm Brent Butterworth. And in our final segment today, we're going to be turning our attention to the Soundstage Network YouTube page, which we're, you know, we're on. <laughs> the, the podcast actually publishes to our, uh, our, our Soundstage Network page a couple of weeks after it publishes on podcatchers, but we don't really talk about the channel much. There's a, there's a new video up from our founder, Doug, that I thought was really cool and really different and worth discussing. And the headline is Hi-Fi will never die because skateboarding didn't. Um, yeah. Before we dig into it, I just want to say, this is something I really like about Doug. It just, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> I, I find that so often in our industry, the, at least the public persona of, of the personalities, you don't get a sense that they have any interest whatsoever outside of audiophilia, right? Yeah, it's just like the only hobby they have. That's the only thing they care about. And the first, when I first started getting to know Doug and it's like, Oh, this dude's like a skateboarder and he's into snowboarding and he talks about it and he's passionate about it. I think mean, it's cool. I think it makes yeah. him more three dimensional. I think it makes him an interesting person. And it, you know, it, it indicates that, he has a life outside of all of this that to me, in a way, it sort of makes hi-fi more interesting to talk to people like this for whom it is not their sole passion because it's just like, oh, this is something that can be part of a broader appeal, right? This is something that can fit into anybody's life. It doesn't have to consume you. It doesn't have to be the only thing you're interested in. And that I have to admit, that's the main reason I wanted to spotlight this video because it shows, you know, guys, we can, we can be interested in all sorts of things, but also the, the, the flip side of that is it, it opens up the hobby to more people because this doesn't have to be a thing that consumes your life. So, yeah. And can we also say, I think Doug is in his like early fifties or something and he's mm -hmm. still riding skateboards, which boy, that takes a lot of, a lot of gumption. I tried in my twenties to ride a skateboard and I looked almost exactly like a baby giraffe uh oh boy just, <laughs> a baby giraffe on roller skates at that it was not pretty so yeah i have a lot of respect for anybody who can do it but so what's but doug's con what's doug's contention here what's he saying what's his, make his here, case the contention here is he talks about how he was really into skating in the late 70s and and then it kind of went away and it died supposedly and then there was this uh this documentary that came out, Dogtown and Z Boys, mm -hmm. in 2001, yeah. that sort of revitalized interest in it as a hobby. And there's this big resurgence. You know, there's there are people making sort of retro decks. There are people collecting skateboard decks. And his point is, you know, a lot of people are sort of doom and gloom about hi-fi. Oh, it's shrinking. Oh, it's going away. And Doug's kind of like, well, skateboarding supposedly went away and now it's mm -hmm. bigger than ever so <laughs> right can we can we can we sort of look to the reasons for that and can we can we sort of have some optimism that anything that is that involves a passion that involves you know hobbies and interests can make a comeback so let's not let's not write yeah. off hi-fi you know yeah. maybe we yeah. just have to it has to adapt so I, I got to point something out here that Doug has omitted because he's mm -hmm. too young to know. Um, <laughs> I'm a little older. Um, skateboard died. Skateboarding died twice. Oh. Um, so skateboarding died. Skateboarding was kind of big in the 60s. And 
that's when I started skateboarding. And oh, um, you're OG. <laughs> I am really OG. And back then they had like I wanted for some reason I wanted a skateboard. I think because like Mike Nesmith of the Monkees had one, and you know I was watching mm. the Monkees on Saturday morning TV. Like you and did. Um, and he was like the coolest of the Monkees. So um, I wanted a skateboard. And w- wait, oh, wait, I, wait, I, wait, 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 pause. Mike Nesmith was the coolest of the Monkees. Yeah. Anyway, so really, yes. Okay. So. Um, <laughs> He was the first one to have the hipster cap that is now de rigueur in places like Brooklyn. Um, I know, but but Davy Davy Jones did like the Axl Rose dance, man. Like he was doing Axl Rose before Axl was wow. even Axl. Okay, you know? and you know, I don't want to I don't want to slight any of those guys. <laughs> they all had they all made their contribution. They were all great, but yeah. I think Mike Nesmith was the coolest one. Anyway, okay, you know. If someone said, who's the coolest audio writer? I wouldn't be mad if they didn't pick me. I think they were probably smart. But right. so I so I wanted a skateboard when I was like a little kid. And and they got it for me for Christmas. And I th- I think they finally found one on uh like like literally Christmas Eve. There was like a drugstore we went to that had one like way in the back, kind of sitting there getting all dusty. And they bought that for me. But skateboards back then had either steel wheels, which was horrible. Pretty rough ride and also no grip, or they have what they call composite wheels, which I think was like a mineral impregnated plastic. And they Mm. would wear down like really fast and really bad. And the ride was really rough and they had no grip. And the boards were like little skinny things. The biggest trucks you could get were only about probably about um, an inch and a half wide from, Mm. from the inside of one wheel to the inside of the other wheel. And they were fairly horrible, but I had a great time on it. And but, you know, and a couple other kids had skateboards, too. We'd, like, ride down the driveway. But then we saw some guy on The Tonight Show who, this is, like, 1970, I don't know, five or four or something. And and he was doing all these tricks. And we're, we everybody saw that. And we're just like, oh, my God, you can do that on a skateboard? And that was right when Urethane Wheels came out. And, boys, when Urethane Wheels happened, oh, I mean, every kid, within a year, every kid in the neighborhood had a, a nice new skateboard. And then eventually they evolved into what like Doug shows in this video. So it died then it died in like 1970 mm-hmm. came back with the invention of urethane wheels. And then as Doug points out, it died again. And like towards the late eighties just became because people found other things to be interested in. Yeah. Um, and then it kind of resurged with, with uh, what was it? Dogtown and, Dogtown Dog and Z Boys. Dogtown and Z Boys. Yeah. yeah. So it, I would argue, though, that the, the thing that really, really, really made it come back big time, at least, you know, in my circles, was Tony Hawk, man. Well, sure. And, uh, I know the, who the, he is. The, but I'm talking about the video game series, you know, yeah, some, but, you some know. of the most popular video oh, games of all time. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was the thing. Man, we were oh. all playing Tony Hawk Pro Skater. You and that's know. fun. Oh, Dude, it is one of the best video games of all time. It's wow. just incredible. But and and it sort of like got my entire friend circle into, man, wouldn't that be cool to do in real life? You know, we would sit around on a couch for literally eight, nine, 10, 12 yeah. hours at a time, hitting these different virtual skate parks and doing these tricks. And a few of us were like, Man, we should we should try this for real. Well, I got <laughs> I learned my lesson really quick on that front, but I think that was a big part of the resurgence too. 
So, oh, I'm sure it, it would have to have been. Um, yeah, but I think Doug's point here is that you know, to say something's dead, I mean, there's an old Gordon Holt article from like <laughs> 1964 or something in Stereophile talking about how hi fi is not dead. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and hey, there, there was an article in the New York Times in God, I think 1982 called Rubik's Cube, A Craze Ends. And they said, you know, the craze has died. Rubik's Cube is over. And I just a few years ago, like, tried to pitch an article to another publication that we both write for about the resurgence. I like Rubik's Cube just sold the the brand Rubik's sold a couple of years ago for $50 million. It's more popular than ever. And what's funny is Rubik's makes the worst speed cubes in the world now. There's like nobody who cubes actually plays with the Rubik's and yet the company sold for $50 million. It is one of the you know, biggest hobbies going on today. Speed cubing tournaments are just everywhere. Every state has their leaderboards. Wow. But, you know, hey, 1982, oh, it's dead. It's over. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, things come back. Um, but so, what so would I it think, take for HiPi to come back, do you think? Well, it's not back. I mean, you go to HiFi shows and it's packed full of people. I mean, That's I don't see it's, it's an enthusiast pursuit. It's, mm-hmm. look, is, is, your average person, I mean, I live here in a fairly normal neighborhood, and my neighbors have, you know, like Sonos and stuff. And now, granted, Sonos is pretty good gear. Yeah. Um, and Sonos is probably actually better sounding than some of the rigs that you hear at, at high-end audio shows. But... <laughs> yeah, especially if you have a couple of Play 5s, like in stereo. Mode. Yeah, and it's, yeah. it's very well-engineered stuff. They have extremely good audio engineers there. Um, and they have the resources to develop stuff that, you know, small high-end audio boutique companies don't. So anyway, but you're not going to have... Look, though, my, my neighbors are not suddenly going to go buy Wilson speakers or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. they're, they're not going to suddenly go go start reading these publications and embracing all that. I mean, one of them might, like some one person in my neighborhood might do that. Probably one person does. But it's just not going to be all that mainstream because, you know, the, the sort of standard mass market stuff that you get, which also does streaming and all kinds of things and, and brings in all kinds of convenience, actually sounds pretty good. But as an enthusiast pursuit, it's going to continue indefinitely. Yeah. It, there's, it's not yeah. going to die. And people who, I think anybody who says something's dead is just asking to be called an idiot on the soundstage <laughs> audiophile podcast. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. there's so many, so many other enthusiast pursuits. I mean, we're, we're talking, you know, like, like, you know, cassette is back. All right. Oh, come on. Yeah. It know, is, but, we, but it we, is. Yeah, but we, we're not, let's not celebrate that. <laughs> yeah. But you know, if, if it gives people joy, I think that's fine. And you know, it seems like everything, you know, there's, there's an old saying is, you know, I'm, I'm, like a, in, in the manner of a stopped clock, I'm fated to be fashionable twice in my lifetime. Hmm. Yeah. You know, because, and, and, you know, just like, like if you, if you look back, what is it? 30 years, like the, the kind of the music that's becoming retro is what, what happened 30 years ago. Yeah. And, you know, so uh, I don't know what phrase, what phase we're in right now, but these things, I mean, right now, synth pop is coming back and people like the weekend are doing, straight straight ahead synth pop tunes yeah and you know that was from the early 80s so do the math whatever that that's actually 40 years but 40 years you know 
you, you I, keep... I heard Nirvana on an oldie station the other day. I yeah. just, I, 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 I just wanted to stop the car and walk slowly into the ocean. I, it's, I can't deal with that. I can't deal with Nirvana as oldies, but yeah, well, dude, I heard from the beginning by Emerson Lake and Palmer at the grocery store the other day. <gasps> no, that's really weird because I was, that was from trilogy and it's a great tune, but like even in my high school in Colorado and Colorado is just always going to be a little on the freaky side. Um, yeah. even in my high school in Colorado, I was one of very few kids that listened to Emerson Lake and Palmer. And you know, the fact that that would be, it's like, Whoa, where is that coming from? That's really weird. And it's, it's, it was lovely wow. to hear it, but I'm yeah. just like, what is the demographic calculation that some computer program <laughs> made that that should be played in my grocery store? Yeah, man. I don't. Wow. See, prog rock crazy. is not dead. Nothing's yeah. dead. I yeah. well, I, I hope I, I, there are things that we might wish are dead, yeah. but um, but you know, everything comes back, and and as stupid as some things may, you know, we go through phases of thinking something's really cool, and then we think it's really stupid, and then we forget about it and think, well, we'll never do that again. But then, you know, time passes, more young people are born, and they come up thinking, oh, well, that's kind of interesting, and yeah. maybe they embrace that. So. I got to say, there's one other element of this video that I really, really like. Yeah. And I think I want to shine a light on is the fact that Doug talks about, you know, collecting these boards, but he has them hanging on the wall in his listening room. He's yeah. using these boards as diffusers, right? And yeah. I think that's really cool because it shines a light on something I mentioned before in that you can use everyday objects as uh, one of the, one of the first stories that I ever wrote with the feedback of uh, Tony Gramani years ago was like just everyday stuff you can do to improve the acoustics of your room. And, you know, for me personally, I like to use bookshelves as diffusion, but yeah. Doug is into skateboarding. So use skateboards as diffusion. And I think that, I don't know, that makes, that makes the whole notion of, of, you know, making improvements and tweaks to your room more appealing when there's going to be somebody that watches this and goes, wait, you can use a skateboard as a diffuser? Is it the perfect diffuser? No. Does it do something? <laughs> Does it, could yeah. it make an improvement properly placed? Absolutely. Now, and, we we and, have to point out that these are, mm -hmm. you know, as Doug points out in there, they're, they're skateboards, I guess nowadays, are either concave or convex. So they're curved mm -hmm. in some way, which makes yeah. them a lot better of a diffuser than a flat thing. Right, right. So exactly. they're still not ideal, but it kind of depends on how you position them and all that. So, but they're also a lot better than a flat wall. Yeah. So it's a good idea. Everything um, doesn't have to be ideal, though. <laughs> you know? I know. I mean, it's I think, not, right. Yeah. So, I mean, better. Anything is better than nothing. And I think the way he's using his boards is really, really cool. And I think yeah. people should take a look and go, what could my thing be? What could I use as diffusers that sort of speaks to my aesthetic or what I'm into or what I collect, right? And I yeah. think that's a neat aspect. So, Yeah. I would say that lots of things can make good diffusers. Um, musical instruments are not among them mm. because they they had their had their own resonance. Yeah, but you know, yeah. uh, I'm I. You can make great diffusers out of if you go get those concrete forming tubes that you can get at uh, Home Depot or uh, or wherever, and you can you can pretty easily take one of those and cut it in half and make two half cylinders out of it, and then you mm. 
you get some fabric and you spray it with some uh, some contact adhesive. You stick the fabric on it, and you have a really nice looking diffuser that then you can you can hang. You put a couple little one by twos in between the 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 ends of it to bridge it, and then you drill a hole in there. I that's the way my I, that was the diffusers I used for a long time. Although to get ones that are, I think you really need. Um, to be ideal for audio, they need to be at least 14 inches in diameter, which is bigger than Home Depot carry. So you might have to go to a, a construction supply store to get those, and they'll be more expensive, but they're not going to break you. Mm-hmm. Cheap, good diffusers, or you can use skateboards, which is more expensive and not as effective, but uh, <laughs> but you know adds yeah. a, adds its own level of cool. And plus, Doug also points out, you know, he's using a combination of diffusion and absorption, mm-hmm. and so you know he has he has created an acoustic treatment based on multiple things, not saying I'm going to put skateboards all over my room. Uh, right. Exactly. Yeah. So I think it's really cool. I mean, you can go look at his videos on YouTube and how do we, how do you get to those anyway? Uh, YouTube.com and just search for well, soundstage network or we'll put, um, we'll put a, we'll put a link in the, in the description yeah. or you can go to, you can, you can go to soundstage.com, you know, the sort oh, of yeah. uh, the portal site and there's a bunch of videos on there though. I think they have at least six at all times and I, there's probably a way to get to the YouTube channel from there. I would assume. Oh yeah. I would just click on one of the videos. Yeah. <laughs> there you are. Well, yeah. And then, yeah. then it'll, sh- then it'll shove a bunch of other videos at you including some soundstage and some from other sources about audio who may or may not be reputable and authoritative. <laughs> that's a ta- that's a story for a different episode. Well, let's wrap this episode up, man. Okay. <laughs> I'm ready for a snack. You want to do some credits? Yeah. So uh, this is a production of Butter Burger Productions. Yeah, that means one of us mixed and mastered and edited it. Right. We're not telling who. Yeah, right. we should say we're a presentation of the Soundstage Network, which, as you just pointed out, people can find at soundstage.com. Find all sorts of topics and audio to discuss. Ooh, what are we doing for music this episode? I think man? let's let's go with Terry Landry one more time. Uh, Ooh, I've got a, I've got a I've got a new remaster I need to send you. And uh, he is putting together an album right now of some pretty adventurous arrangements and what he calls I think I think tiki jazz it's very kind of it's a combination of throwback to sort of uh, you know kitschy 60s you know kind of tiki music but also with a lot of really way forward jazz arranging and composition that's like 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 light years beyond anything I can do some really cool late motifs woven through it too so. yeah I don't know what those are but <laughs> I'll, I'll assume we could, we could talk about that offline. Yeah, I don't speak German, so. <laughs> uh, well, cool, man. We want to we want to tell people we'll be back in a couple of weeks. We will be with more fascinating audio topics. We'll be coming near the end of the year, and maybe we'll have a maybe we'll do like some kind of year end roundup or who knows what. Oh, nice. That'd be a good idea. All right, yeah. Let's let's talk cool. about that. All right. Okay. We'll see you guys later. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye.